Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Ellis Ross joins us, MLA for Skeena and band leader. He wants Canada to listen to what the majority of the Indigenous communities have to say. We're not even at the U.S. election yet, and Russia is already interfering. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, talking about blockades and where we are today, let's bring in again Ellis Ross. He is the MLA for Skeena and out in British Columbia and former band leader and is with us now. Ellis, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay. Uh, Ellis, it seems to be we're hearing uh, one side of this story, and that is uh, Canada uh, versus the Indigenous population, and the Indigenous population uh, does not want uh, pipelines of any sort. What is the other side of this story from the Indigenous communities that we hear, the majority of, are in support of such pipelines? Uh, yeah, that's right. The rest of Canada hasn't listened to the members in all these communities from Prince George to Kitimat. And those are 20 communities, uh, four or five of which are actually with Sudan people. And uh, the, the narrative that uh, Canada is actually hearing, and actually the actions of blockades, this is not the, on, on the side of Aboriginals. Aboriginals do not want to see Canada shut down. The Wet'suwet'en people themselves do not want to see the blockades, and they don't want to see Canada shut down. We actually enjoy all the services that Canada provides. We love, we love the hospitals and roads and everything else. So, so please don't blame the Aboriginals. Don't blame those certain people. It's not us. Who is it? That's an interesting question. You know, for, for that, uh, I think uh, the, the media, as well as all these leaders and our legislators, should take a, real, take a really good, serious look at Vivian Krause's work and take it seriously this time. Don't dismiss her as Looney Tunes. I think that's where people should start to, to really take a look at what's happening in Canada. And what is that message? Give us a give us a brief version of what that is. Basically, what it is are these groups uh, are not actually standing up for Aboriginal issues. If, if that was the case, they'd be out there protesting the, the extraordinary number of suicides, the number of people on welfare. What these groups are standing up for is to stop fossil fuels, stop forestry, stop mining, uh, you name it. Uh, basically, it's to, to stop anything that's got to do with our economy. So, are the in your view, are the anti-pipeline groups using the indigenous community to, to 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 take advantage of Canadians who maybe don't understand all of this issue? Well, it would be a simple search, a Google search, to find the GoFundMe pages, all the fundraising events that happened in San Francisco, and who put on these groups? Who's the ones? And more importantly, it wasn't the Wet'suwet'en people themselves that said, "Okay, let's shut down Canada." It wasn't the elected leaders of those Wet'suwet'en bands that said, let's shut down Canada. It wasn't Aboriginals that said, said that. So my question is, who gave the order to shut down Canada? Who gave the order to blockade these railway lines? I think if, if there's some investigative journalism to be done, that question should be researched. Um, uh, some uh, The hereditary chiefs say they don't believe in the elected band council. The invec- elected band council and that democracy is part of the Indian Act. It's part of the colonialization of Canada. What, do the rest, what does the rest of the Indigenous community think about that? Well, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs said the same thing. And that, that, is, that is a condescending remark because there are 203 bands in BC and every one of them have a different form of leadership. Some of them are elected leadership, some of them are hereditary, some of them are hybrid. 
So for these people to go around saying that it's a colonial construct and everything, they're missing the point of what it means to be a Canadian. Democracy. Everybody enjoys democracy. And that means everybody in Canada should be able to choose their own leader if that's what they want. If these communities want to choose hereditary leadership, okay, go go ahead, do it. But for these leaders, the Union BC Indian Chiefs and everybody else to kind of insult elected band leaders and try to destabilize and delegitimize that, that is unacceptable. That is reckless and it's irresponsible because Canada is going to pay for that. Um, uh, do the majority of Indigenous communities support these pipelines? Yes, 20 communities along the pipeline route, as well as uh, the Gitgat uh, First Nation that lives down Channel, uh, just uh, south from uh, my band. They've all been part of a process over the last 15 years, consultation accommodation processes, as well as participating in environmental assessments. They participate to this day on permits that are coming out of that project, and they're also trying to implement all the training opportunities, all the revenue-sharing agreements, uh, everything, everything that they've done, depending on that community, on what they negotiated with the company, as well as what they negotiated with the provincial government. And who's to say what was said or done with the federal government? Uh, the, the Ocean Protections Plan under the Trans Mountain, for example, that, that was done in conjunction with First Nations. Hmm. Canadians are not hearing 99.9% of the story here. Let me ask you this question, Alice. Why aren't the majority of the Indigenous communities speaking up uh, about this? I mean, you know, it's it's one thing for the rest of us to do our investigative reporting and digging and try to find out the source of, of what's going on within the Indigenous community, but why can't the majority of the Indigenous community come out and, and speak out against this? We had a chief, uh, Mohawk chief in, in Belleville that said he wanted the the uh, uh, blockades brought down, and then a day later he retracted the statement. Um, so, uh, again, if, if, if you can't convey the message or the Indigenous community can't convey the message, how can the rest of Canada do that? Well, Number one, there's a lot of lateral violence in our communities, uh, which is sad because all these elected councillors, all they're trying to do is dig themselves out of poverty. They're trying to get out from underneath the Indian Act, yeah. but it's not totally correct, uh, given people out there like uh, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs saying that, well, what they're doing is colonialist. Uh, oh, they just sold out their culture. Oh, they turned their back on our people. Yeah. Last time I checked, a lot of these leaders are actually dri- driving really nice cars. They got nice houses. They got nice RSPs. They're actually using the banks to actually bank their money. But then they turn around and they, they use these derogatory terms like colonialist and settler and try to keep us down from actually enjoying the life that they enjoy themselves. Hmm. This, this, this country is going backwards in terms of reconciliation. So uh, you said something last time you were on, and it stuck with me. And you said this, and I'm I'm uh, I'm paraphrasing here, so I don't have your words exact. But you said something along the lines of, "This is not Canada's problem. This is a problem within the Indigenous community uh, between the band councils, the elected band councils, and the hereditary chiefs on who speaks for the people." Is that accurate? That's that's accurate. And if you think about that, it it, it seems just basic common knowledge practical it says a community should be able to choose its own leadership yeah but really you go deeper Aboriginal rights and title are held on the behalf of the community it's not held on be, uh, you know by a certain group or certain individuals so it only stands the reason the community should decide who represents them when they're talking about Aboriginal rights and title hmm. so how much control do those hereditary chiefs have they say they have title to that land so at the end of the day is the law on their side 
I'm not sure where that narrative came from because I hear people citing uh, the case law Delgamu, and I read Delgamu uh, and I read all the the accompanying documents, and nowhere did I see that territory or band councils actually hold authority. Hmm. The only principle I saw that came out of that was that uh, it's a communal right, and therefore the community has to have a say in how that right is actually exercised. So I, I didn't see any of that. So I, I don't know where that, that, that narrative came from. Uh, should the Prime Minister be meeting with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who are, uh, who are in opposition of this? I don't know. I really don't know because uh, for that, I think uh, the Prime Minister or the Premier or any of the governments should actually take a look at uh, the record first. How much consultation was done? With who? How much engagements? What what kind of agreements were were signed? Uh, you don't you don't want to just go in there cold, right? And start to start the process all over again. It's hard to turn back the clock fifteen years. And it, by the way, there's enough politics in this situation already. That's what got us to this place in the first place. Hmm. So I don't think we need more politics. I think hmm. it's just going to blur the situation even more. What should the prime minister do here? Oh, that's a good question. Stop playing politics. Number one. Uh, basically, we, we had a roadmap uh, that was actually drawn up by the courts of Canada, B.C., that actually originated with Section 35 of the Constitution, and it was going great. It, we, we actually, we, we created the con- reconciliation on the ground over the last 12 years in the context of LNG. We got the agreement signed, we got people employed, we got people trained, and that's the whole idea of reconciliation. But now the federal government and the B.C. government bring in this document from the United Nations that, that kind of resets the whole game. Hmm. And the United Nations document, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, it would have been a great thing if this got uh, brought into Canada prior to 1982. It would have helped us immensely. But Canada has progressed so far with uh, addressing Aboriginal rights and title, especially when uh, the High Court case came out in 2004. I mean, it, it, why do you want to set us back? Why do you want to keep First Nations under the Indian Act? Hmm. It, it, it boggles my mind. Why do the uh, why do uh, more protests seem to be popping up in other parts of the country? Uh, misinformation. But you, know, you see a lot of those protesters have no idea what they're protesting, and they're actually using it for their own agenda because a lot of those people don't like uh, fossil fuels, for example, mm-hmm. or forestry. I mean, one, one lady said, uh, when she was asked what was in the pipeline, and she said, dead animals. Wow. And then when she corrected herself, she said, oh, oh bitumen. Another guy said, uh, when he was asked if he knows what he's protesting, he said, no, but this is a great way to bring profile to it. Mm. How, so, like, does your com- how does your community balance those that are anti-pipeline? Because, uh, again, you've said the majority of the communities along the route, uh, the majority of the Wet'suwet'ens all want this pipeline. It helps to, to, uh, to bring the community out of poverty and such. How does your community balance, especially culturally, balance the fact that this is, this is still energy extraction? Uh, you know, and, and, and what the anti-pipeline protesters have to say. Well, we do through the environmental assessment, and also we we kept our community apprised of what was going on. Yeah, and and we talked about it extensively in terms of what we were trying to achieve. And you know, the environmental standards that are in in the environmental certificate for LNG Canada for the terminal in our territory, those standards are hired because my First Nation community actually engaged, and we said those standards you got are great, but they have to be hired. Yeah, we have to protect certain areas. Mm-hmm. We have to do this. 
And so there's exclusion zone for tankers, for example. And nobody recognizes this. That uh, You can thank First Nations for hiring the environmental standards in Canada. Hmm. I bet you not many people know that. Um, so what do you think the hereditary chiefs want? I understand they are meeting as well with Mohawks down in Belleville. What do you think is going to come of that? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, what do they want? They, they want this pipeline, this $40 billion uh, project. Uh, they want it canceled. Yeah. Uh, and it won't matter what the other 21st Nations think. It won't matter what BC thinks. It won't matter what Canada thinks. Uh, they've been unequivocal in saying it. So the people that put this together, the people that played politics with the rights and title, I've warned people over the years, you should not play politics with the rights and title. You should not play politics with Aboriginal issues because it can get out of hand pretty quick. And yeah. now you see what's happening all across Canada. Are you upset that these people are, say, they're representing you, say they're looking out for Indigenous people's best interest? Yeah, because they don't have a clue what they're talking about. I mean, try to go to your friend's funeral because he committed suicide or he overdosed on drugs. Uh, go try to talk to a guy that, that's trying to uh, recover from alcohol. I mean, 80 to 90% of First Nations in Canada unemployed. We have the highest rate of suicides. Or we have the highest rate of children going into care. Uh, you, you name it. I mean, people like to cite uh, all these statistics in election time, but when it comes time to do something practical, they then resort to, to basically everything else but real issues, like, like real solutions to these issues. You never hear people talking about average Aboriginal issues when it becomes political, like what we're seeing now. Hmm. You never hear anybody talk about average Aboriginals. And that's, I can't stand that. I will not stop advocating for average Aboriginals because given the case law and given our, our track record for the last 12 years, they deserve a future. What does a project like this mean to Indigenous communities? Well, like mine, for the last five years, uh, it means the next generation can finally chart out a future and stop wasting time talking about the Indian Act. They can stop wasting time talking about all those social issues that affect us because they're not suffering through it like we did. Uh, we're, we're talking about a whole generation of First Nations that will not have to deal with the stuff that we dealt with. I mean, as far as I can see... Because they have a way out, they have a way to prosperity with a job and such and a future. Yeah, they, they have jobs. And now that, now that they're getting experience with meaningful jobs, now they can decide for themselves, do I like this? Or should I go back to school now? Or should I go out and try a different job? Hmm. Uh, they're charting out their future. They're, they're getting mortgages in their own name, not under the Internet Act, in their yeah. own name. They're going on holidays. They're, they're, they're doing all sorts of things that uh, Canadians take for granted. Do you think the Prime Minister, one of the reasons the Prime Minister it seems to be so uninvolved with this is because uh, not only his support and, 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 and such for, well, for what he says for the Indigenous community and also for uh, environmentalists and anti-pipeline. Do you think he's trying to play both sides of the fence here? Well, that's what I said in the, the B.C. legislature in terms of uh, the B.C. government. I'm not sure uh, how it applies to the federal government, hmm. but this is, uh, this is game playing. Are you surprised that, on that note, are you surprised Premier Horgan of British Columbia now says the pipeline's going through, the pipeline's going through, and it's got to it's be done, and the blockades have to come down? Are you surprised he's saying that at this point? No, because he, he's in a tough spot. He's got a lot of colleagues that were activists uh, to yeah. begin with. And it is still aligned with the activists. But he also recognized this is a $40 billion uh, project that actually can, uh, can transform B.C. and Canada. And if, if, he does, if he doesn't 
if he doesn't build the project, it's, it's more than likely the BC government gets sued. Now, it's a $40 billion project. Now, in, in light of that, I'm sure the First Nations that have already signed agreements that are banking on revenue coming in, banking on jobs, mm. I'm sure they'd intervene and they'd sue somebody as well because this is, this is their future. How do you think this is going to end, Alice? Uh, good question. You know, I warned people about this uh, over the last couple of years about how, how we shouldn't do this. Uh, nobody took my, my warnings. and uh, what, shouldn't we ha- what, what shouldn't we have done, Alice? You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't go out and talk rhetorical about Aboriginal issues. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't play party. In fact, mm. you shouldn't talk about how everybody else is colonialist or they're settlers. Yeah. That's a derogatory term. It's a racist term. You shouldn't use that. The only thing you're doing is dividing people. You shouldn't say things like, oh, Ben, councils are only uh, good for jurisdiction on reserve. And you shouldn't say, uh, you know, LNG provides no benefit for First Nations. This is some of the stuff that's coming up the UDBC and the Chiefs. And I was shocked yesterday at the UDBC and the Chiefs. They said, you know, we got to get away from uh, these, these industries signing agreements with communities because uh, th- th- that's not leading to certainty. What a ludicrous thing to say. Hmm. I mean, my community is not going to give up the right to negotiate with a provincial government or an industry based on their rights and title infringements. Wow. It is complicated. Ellis Ross has been with us. Ellis, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of this to us and make uh, some clarity here. MLA for Skeena in beautiful British Columbia and band council leader out there. Ellis, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, in case you are unaware, all of the major teacher unions are on strike today. Uh, and there is a big protest going on at Queen's Park. Let's bring in Travis. Oh, wait, do we have some clips of Lecce? Here? Today's uh, really about more the parents of the province, who I think are spending many of spending a day at home, taking time away from their work. There's an economic cost. There's a financial impact on people. And obviously, kids are out of class. And I just think that's unacceptable especially while we are negotiating in good faith with two of our union partners as we speak, or I you know we have been over the past hours and days. I think there's, a lot, there's many constructive ways we can be expending a lot of energy today. That should be the negotiating table to provide stability for our kids. They should be in class today, and I've made that position very clear over the past days as I've urged the union to work with us to redouble their efforts as the government has to provide the stability every child in Ontario deserves. What matters today is about the two million children who ought to be, you know, continuing their academic journey. And the fact that these strikes happen too often are problems. The fact that this happens far too often, even in the past weeks, I think demonstrates there needs to be some joint resolution from all the parties to stay, stay focused on an outcome. And that outcome for me is a deal. All right, that's Education Minister Stephen Lecce. Let's bring in Ta- uh, Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Travis is with us now. Travis, just another boring day down at the ledge. What are you doing with all your time? <laughs> well, listen, it is certainly anything but boring today down here. I, I mean, it's quite the scene. I, I'm looking out my window right now, and there's still a lot of teachers out there. It so describe what, you're, describe what you're seeing. What's going on down there? So it's thinning out right now, but, you know, about a half hour ago or so, there were tens of thousands of teachers marching around Queen's Park. It uh, looks like the street's still closed down, and, and folks uh, are on the north side of the building right now for a little bit of a rally. But, but certainly this was, you know, we had the helicopter up this morning to get an aerial view of it. It was certainly, you know, unlike anything we have seen in this province in decades uh, since the Mike Harris 
years when there was that mass uh, walkout uh, and strike at that point in time. This is uh, an all-out war between the educators in this province and the government right now, and it seems as though, uh, you know, parents largely, according to all the polling, are on side with the educators. And you had to sit down with Stephen Lecce. What was that like? I did. <laughs> well, I, I, I joke uh, that it's kind of like preparing to cross-examine a, a witness on the stand. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, this is the thing with the minister, and he is very good at his job, uh, and he's very good at, you know, uh, talking points and moving forward with the marching orders that he has yeah. from the premier's office. So that you know that that that's what they the message that they want to get out. But you know when he sticks to his talking points and you're asking him, you know, different questions, dozens of different questions, and you're getting the same answers that you've you know heard for weeks. It's a bit frustrating. But certainly, listen, we talked to him about a number of subjects. We talked to him about what was going on outside. We were inside Queens Park. Uh, the money the $1.2 billion extra dollars that he says the government is investing in education. Well, you know, we talked to them about, well, nearly half of that is in child care, and that doesn't account for inflation either. Talking about class sizes, salary, e-learning, hiring practices as well. Uh, so it's a pretty wide-ranging interview. We talked to him about 15 minutes or so. So at the end of the day, it seems that this is still all about the two e-learning classes and the increase in class size from uh, 20 to 20, uh, 21 to 25. They came down from 28. So that's still, you know, one, one extra student uh, in grade four to eight, three extra students in high school, plus two elementary, or sorry, two e-learning courses. If that's what's separating these two parties, why can't they split all of that in half and call it a day? Well, I mean, the education minister says that this is about compensation as well and benefits, and he says that the uh, unions are asking for too much when it comes to compensation and benefits. The teachers, though, will say to you, uh, and, you know, a lot of them that I talked to uh, just outside a little while ago, and they say, listen, I've lost already more than 2% in my salary when it comes to, to being out on picket lines and out today. It's about one uh, point half a percentage uh, that they lose every single day that they're out on strike. So, you know, I put that to the minister. And he said, that's their choice to be out there. Uh, you know, we, did, we don't want strikes. We want to get a deal. And they are working towards that. Certainly, you know, the two biggest unions, OSSTF, which represents high school uh, teachers and educators, and ETFO, which represents elementary educators, they have not been at the table for a very long time. The January, uh, the end of January for... Uh, and it was back last year in December for OSSTF. So it appears nobody's moving, Travis. So what's the next step? What happens here? Well, the next step is, you know, I mean, you may see a deal with one of the unions. They were at the table yesterday with OECTA, which is the Catholic Teachers Union. It's a smaller union than the high school and elementary teachers. And then they're also at the table with the French teachers. So, you know, you may see some moves there. There might be a deal in the coming weeks there, but with these the two major unions, uh, I, I, there, there doesn't seem to be a ton of movement. And we could be going in the direction of back-to-work legislation, but as we've talked about, we're, we're still a ways away from that. The Minister of Education has to uh, ask what is called the Education Relations Commission, a body of about five people or so, for advice on whether or not the school year is in jeopardy. He has not done that, that yet, and uh, he hasn't done that partially because... 
the school year is not in jeopardy yet. I mean, they, they are in rotating strikes, right. and this is a different tactic than we've seen in the past. Uh, if they do get one of those other unions on board, won't the rest have to fall in line? Uh, not necessarily. No. Uh, uh, no. I mean, these are, these are four separate tables that they're working at right now. Uh, the two hardest are the two uh, largest unions. ETFO has about 86,000 members or so. I can't remember the number off the top of my head for OSFC yet, but it's significant as well. Um, and so those are going to be the two hardest deals to get. Right. Um, and, and the union presidents who had a press conference earlier this morning here at Queen's Park, they, they don't seem to be budging at all. Um, the, the government is fighting this battle uh, that they want to maintain 1% increase when it comes to wages. There's also a court battle going on right now with all four of the major unions on uh, Bill 124, which is the legislation to cap public sector workers' wages at 1% per year. Mm-hmm. They might lose that fight. Uh, and they might have to give them the increase in any case. If it does get to the point, and we're talking about you know a month or two at least away, if it gets to the point where there is back-to-work legislation, uh, that could end up costing the government more money. And also, uh, an arbitrator would be brought in, uh, a binding arbitration would happen, and that may not be good for either the government and the union. So nobody wins in that case. Travis Danraj has been with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 as Travis tries to decode this. Uh, Travis, as always, thanks so much for your time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on and head down south of the border uh, with everything that's been happening there, whether it's uh, impeachment or or, uh, Democratic debates or now... Uh, U.S. intel officers claiming that Russia is getting involved in the U.S. election, which is coming up later this year. Again, uh, let's bring in Claire Finkelstein. She is a professor of law and professor of uh, philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and is with us now. Claire, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised to be hearing this information about Russia at this point in the campaign? No, of course, I'm not surprised. And, and we all knew that Russia would try to do it again. Um, <clears throat> they were uh, totally unapologetic about their efforts to influence the 2016 election. We know that they were active during the midterm elections. And uh, those of us who work in national security fully expected that they would try to influence the election um, this time around. What is a little bit surprising in this report is the degree to which they appear to be active in the primaries. And that shows how much they are really interested in polarizing the American uh, voting public and also um, that they really perceive Donald Trump's chances as improved um, and as sensitive to uh, who he is running against. Um, so they are uh, most likely interested in uh, it being Sanders, uh, who is the nominee, and regard Donald Trump's chances as higher if it is. So do we know exactly what form the interference is coming in? You were saying that they are supporting Sanders or putting uh, uh, promotional material out there that would promote Sanders, seeing that he would be the best opponent that Donald Trump could, be, could win. Yeah, we don't have details. Uh, at least the public does not have details at, at this point. Um, I assume that those details will start to trickle out. Um, 
of course, we know what happened um, with that report to Congress is that Joe McGuire, uh, the ODNI, was fired as a result of delivering the truth to Congress um, and uh, that an acting head of ODNI was, was put in his place, um, who we expect to be extremely compliant um, with the uh, Trump administration's desire not to expose the degree of Russian interference and meddling to the American public. Um, and so, it, you know, we now very, very clearly have a president who is inviting and covering up for foreign interference in our elections um, and does not even want his it, the intelligence community to tell the truth to the Congress about what's going on with that interference. That apparently now is a firing offense in our system. So that's the part that was somewhat surprising, not the fact that Russia is meddling, but the fact um, number one, that they are meddling this much this early, and number two, um, that the Trump administration is willing to be quite open about the fact that it is not tolerable to call Russia out on this. Um, we remember certainly during the first campaign, Donald Trump encouraging Russia, the WikiLeaks, the Hillary emails, all of that sort of thing. Um, you were talking about reacting this by trying to silence people. Again, this is the second time around for this sort of thing. Uh, can you cover this up? Can you hide this up? Can, will this not be uh, great, uh, greater, uh, uh, more exposed this time? Will it not be harder to cover this up? It, it is harder to cover up, though. Um, we also know that the Russians haven't always tried to cover up their meddling. So in some cases, when they've um, electronically interfered, they sort of leave obvious traces that they've been there. And part of the goal here is to sort of mess with the heads of Americans to make us not trust the results of our own elections, um, to make us uh, doubt the veracity of our own political conclusions, um, and in general to, to instill a certain amount of insecurity in the system as a whole. Um, the, the other main thing that they try to do is to polarize the American public. So people, for example, have not focused on the fact that in the 2016 election, the Russians were actually supporting Jill Stein. And there's that famous picture of Jill Stein sitting at a table mm. um, with Putin and Mike Flynn, right? The famous picture that we saw yeah. all the time in the Mike Flynn indictment has Jill Stein sitting on the other side of the table. Um, so it's not surprising that they might be you know, going for the more polarizing candidate um, in Bernie Sanders. But now that we see that that is really a, a coordinated effort uh, with uh, Trump, and uh, you also find Trump tweeting, oh, you know, isn't this unfair to Bernie Sanders? Because he certainly doesn't want to, want to find himself uh, facing off against uh, Bloomberg. Why would Russia not try to cover this up? The well, fact that I they're think, doing this. Yeah. I think part of, the, part of the thing is that Vladimir Putin likes to flaunt his um, superior um, intelligence operations and covert operations in uh, the faces of other countries. So he does sort of like to, um, to, to kick, kick his weight around um, and uh, show how much he's able to do. And then in a kind of, you know, 
gaslighting way um, say, well, you know, we had nothing to do with that. And then you have Donald Trump saying, well, he said he had nothing to do with it. And I believe him. Yeah. So um, nudge, like, nudge, wink, play, wink. <laughs> yeah. Playing mind games, I think, with the American public. Um, what's disturbing is that when it's all out in the open and we have uh, members of Congress who are hearing this, there is no longer any outrage. Mm. And and it's been sort of boil the frog slowly uh, so that it doesn't leap out of the um, out of the pot. Uh, we now have members of Congress who, uh, as we saw when we came through the impeachment, well, yeah, I believe that Donald Trump reached out to Ukraine uh, to try to put pressure on them to dig up dirt on a political rival. But you know what? It's not an impeachable offense. So uh, we have members of Congress shrugging at this and saying, you know, it's just. You know, how do politics. how do Americans react to this, especially confirmations so early on, as you put it, even in the primaries? Do they care uh, as long as their team wins? My worry is that Americans don't care anymore. So, for example, uh, two nights ago, we saw the Democratic debate. There wasn't a single candidate talking about American security and the need to protect American critical infrastructure, which is what our elections are, uh, from foreign interference. There was nobody talking about that. It was all a domestic agenda. So how did it happen that we have a, a foreign country that is inimical to American interests meddling in our last presidential election, um, and we don't have a single Democratic candidate saying, and I will be the president who ensures that we can keep Russia at bay and make sure that our elections are safe. Uh, what does the rest of the White House, how does the rest of the White House react to this? Well, I, think I, I mean, especially is, with U.S. intelligence yeah. saying that this is going on. Um, there is, of course, an outcry among members of the intelligence community. Um, but the White House itself uh, does not offer any resistance to this president because um, that is that is not possible to do and, and remain on board. Um, and in general, I think across our system, both our appointed and our elected officials, there is less and less resistance being put up to the um, abuse of power of this president, especially in the wake of impeachment, where the feeling now is uh, sort of, He's unstoppable, hmm. and he seems to feel very much unleashed. Um, so the you know sort of um, blatant statements that he makes, um, such as "I am the chief law enforcement officer," suggesting that he may pardon Roger Stone, yeah. trying to meddle with the Justice Department, uh, trying to influence the course of a proceeding, which is quite blatant obstruction of justice. But at this point, he doesn't care anymore. And so how has the American public become sort of immune um, to being concerned uh, that our Justice Department is independent, that our elections are free from foreign influence? Uh, is there a new normal being set here? I uh, can't let you go, Claire, without asking you your thoughts on uh, what's happening with the Democratic Party, specifically uh, the rise in the popularity of Bloomberg. Can he actually make a run at this? And, and what are your thoughts on Bloomberg's chances? Well, um, I think Liz Warren did an excellent job of, of uh, showing up the weaknesses that he has. Are you surprised he wasn't better prepared for that? 
I was surprised he wasn't better prepared for that. He had to know that this issue of his non-disclosure agreements mm-hmm. with various women, given how controversial it has been for Donald Trump, and given that it is the um, you know reason why Donald Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, went to prison, had to do with an NDA, um, where the president himself was an unindicted co-conspirator. Right. So um, people are going to prison over these NDAs. You might think, gee, I have a few of these, too. I better be prepared um, for statements like that. So I thought Liz Warren was absolutely right to press him on that. And I think um, it did uh, increase her standing in the polls and harm and harm Bloomberg's. Um, I was also a little surprised that he wasn't better prepared to answer questions about stop and frisk uh, and that he other candidates could really uh, get some miles on him by saying, look, uh, you have to take responsibility for this policy. You can't just say I inherited this policy. Um, but on the other hand, the voting public that would be prepared to vote for Donald Trump is not the segment of the population that cares a lot about NDAs mm. or cares a lot about stop and frisk. And so it may be that a segment of the population just feels, uh, you know, he's better than Donald Trump. And he's got the same sorts of skeletons in his closet. But you know what? You know, one billionaire um, bully against another. I'd rather take this one. Hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, we know that the African-American community, oddly, has been very supportive of him, despite the stop and frisk issue in his past. So um, it may be that Americans on the left feel that, hey, if African-Americans can tolerate him with this history, so could I. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Let's bring in Jared Yek Sexton, political commentator and American author of the book uh, American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. And Jared is with us now. Jared, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So here we are uh, heading into another American election. There is uh, another uh, round of accusations against Russia interfering, even at this stage of the primary level. Uh, Are Americans going to fall for this again, or are Americans going to put up with this again? That's a fantastic question. (laughs) I mean, I, I think we're watching this really terrible drama play out that, you know, it's like a rerun that's just being played again and everyone's expecting something to change somehow along the way. But we we do have a president in Donald Trump who is aware that Russian interference not only helped him in 2016, but it's continued to help him in his first three years as president and is gearing up and and is actually escalating going into the 2020 re-election contest. So the real question is whether or not we can wrap our heads around just how much interference there is and and how potent it has been and and actually do something to take care of it. But unfortunately, that would also require the Republican Party to step up and actually work against its own political interest in this case. So whether or not it will be stopped is one question, but I I think there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic about that possibility. Uh, Do Americans care uh, as long as it's their team this, this supports? That's the problem right there uh, in a nutshell. Um, The problem here is that we have become polarized to the point where, particularly on the Republican side of the equation, uh, it's turned into a uh, zero-sum game of political warfare, where it doesn't matter about laws or institutions or norms or, or, you know, wading into these ugly waters with disinformation and foreign interference. 
the unfortunate truth is a lot of people see this again as a war and any tactics are are you know welcome and to be used and and that's unfortunately becoming the norm here uh, everybody just assuming at this point that uh, Donald Trump is going to get a second term. Is there anything in your view that could derail it at this point? It seems that he's just, even with impeachment, he just seems to build momentum. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I just assume simply because this has been sort of a rolling disaster of a presidency that he's simply just not going to win re-election. But I, I think the truth is right now it's a coin flip about exactly what's going to happen here. I think there are a lot of Democrats who match up well against him, and there's a possibility that anything uh, at all could possibly happen. The one thing I keep hearing in conversations I have with voters, and even Trump supporters, though, is that they're really exhausted. The constant yeah. cultural warfare, um, you know, the, the constant political war that's going on, I think it's really taking a toll with a lot of people. So whether or not that means that they'll switch votes or they'll go towards the Democratic ticket is one question, but for, you know, the, the Trump administration administration and four to five years of Trump right now, I, I think have taken a toll on people. I've, I remember asking various political commentators such as yourself that over the years or professors, uh, you know, at what point do Americans just become exhausted with the conflict? At what time, at what point do Americans just become fatigued of there always having to be a winner or a loser here, whether you like the politics or not? Yeah, and it doesn't work. I mean, really, the election of Donald Trump was like, you know, a voting public becoming uh, a sea of spectators watching a television show and calling for it to be renewed. I mean, certainly a lot of people actually voted for him because they considered it more entertaining and more enlivening and this idea that they were quote-unquote winning. But, you know, if, if this is a television show, and we've seen this with one television show after another, people get tired of it and they run their course. So this is definitely one of those moments where the entertainment value of it, I think, is worn thin. We have American families that have been torn apart by political squabbles and political battles. We have people who are tired of being inundated with scandals and, you know, one developing breaking story after another. There is a possibility that Trump exhaustion could play a role in what happens in the fall. But, of course, I think the Democratic Party would have to play their hands well. Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, it appears at this point they're focusing uh, more on destroying themselves than they are on moving forward with policy. Are they spending too much time concentrating on the foils of Donald Trump as opposed to what their policy should be moving forward? That's a great question. I, I, I think what we saw in the last debate in Nevada, and there, there, there's a long history in American politics of there being these, you know, blood on the floor, giant clear out battles during yeah. the primaries where there, there will actually be a really ugly debate that will take place. And then it changes the narrative of how things go. Now, that doesn't mean that this couldn't turn into an absolute dreadful slog that, you know, works against any message of change or hope or inspiration that could come from it. And the Democratic Party in America, unfortunately, has a history of just absolutely blowing any chances that they have and, and sort of, you know, setting themselves on fire. So the, it's really unclear at this point whether or not the debate going into the election is going to change or whether or not it's going to go after Trump or really, you know, take a toll or lead to change. But uh, as of right now, it, it's pretty unclear where this thing's going. Jared Yates Sexton has been with us, political commentator and author of the book American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. Jared, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Hey, thank you so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.